0: We were getting ready to start the show, and it kind of took like a philosophical angle, and I said, hold on, save it for the show, Alex. You said you've come to a life decision, so I think we should all prepare ourselves here on the show. Well, a little bit, yeah. I mean, we spoke to Matt as part of the Adventurous Way
1: YouTube channel a few episodes ago, and I've been watching his progress on his Vermont property, about building, self-building his house and everything like that, and you know, I'm, I'm living in a very nice house in suburbia, in Raleigh, it's very nice. On paper, I have no reason not to like this house, except for the fact that at least once a week, I get woken up by my neighbor's lawn crew at like 7, 7.30 a.m. Such a first world problem. But when you work from home and stuff like that, like, legitimately, I'm not always awake at that time, even with, you know, a, a barely a one-year-old. I mean, she does wake up often before that, but... Just the amount—I don't think I'd have really appreciated before I moved to suburbia. Just how much yard work people do. Leaf blowers are—I'm I'm developing a pathological hatred of them. Let's put it that way.
0: Boy, I, I gotta say, um, I don't think I've been—I don't think I've been happier to hear something in a long time because I thought I was the only one, and I kind of felt like a crazy person. No, man, it's the worst. And when you're trying to record podcasts on a daily basis, I don't know what it is, but. Uh, it's like it's like people have gotten tool crazy, and there's a competition in my neighborhood to have like the loudest, most powerful, most gas-powered tool possible to do yep. the job.
1: <laughs> it's those two-stroke engines, and I know that even if we do move somewhere else, and this is the decision that we've come to, is that we're probably some point next year going to look towards buying a piece of land, maybe in the Appalachians somewhere, uh, although that's totally up for debate but the decision we've come to is that in order to facilitate the land purchase we're going to buy an rv oh i
0: thought you were gonna say bitcoin <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> oh i see like you're gonna do like a tour a land tour well this is it you know
1: the, the Appalachians, the bit we want to live in anyway is, is probably the right at the southern tip sort of knoxville atlanta that sort of that sort of side you know not too far from the tail of the dragon actually um and that's five six hours drive from here so if we wanted to go and look at a piece of land that just came on the market say you know that is a long day's driving whereas if we had a van we could park it down that that neck of the woods leave it down there and then we don't need to worry about hotels we don't need to worry about all sorts of stuff and then if and when we do buy the piece of land we've got somewhere we can actually park the rv and kind of stay a bit off grid and all, all that kind of stuff really is what we're thinking so
0: you know why I like it is because you are a work-from-home guy, and, mm-hmm. and what work-from-home really means is work online. And so, you know, one of the things we could totally do is deck your van out or whatever it is with a solid internet connection yeah. and good Wi-Fi. Because, man, if that's not an area I, that I that I haven't spent years figuring out now, I feel like I could launch a consulting business just on mobile connectivity. But we could totally get your rig dialed in, and then you could work from the road and, uh, you know, kind of make that kind of thing a little more doable so you don't have to take vacation all the time when you're doing it too. Well, that's just it, yeah. We're not looking for like a lady dupe size type thing,
1: you know, like a huge bus type thing, but uh, maybe a Class C or something like that. Like in England, it would be called like a camper van or something, not like a sprinter size, like the next size up, Uh, you know, medium size. So we could still drive it into national parks and stuff like that in the future if we wanted to, you know, and not, not take up half the parking lot.
0: I'll tell you what, you might want to get in the Starlink queue now. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm From hearing. what I'm hearing. Yep. <laughs> it sounds pretty bad. I'm pretty grateful I got it when I did. And then not only not only am I grateful that I got in the queue when I did for Starlink, but did you see that they updated the Starlink dish? And now it it is smaller and I suspect uses less power, which sounds really nice, but it doesn't come with built-in Ethernet anymore. That's like a. It's an additional purchase. And I think it might even be like a USB Ethernet deal now. So how does that work? Isn't the whole point that it just plugged into a firewall or some description? I mean, that's what made it huge for me, right? Because I'm a Starlink is one of four different simultaneous possible internet connections that I have. <laughs> and so being able to manage that in one router is very nice. Four. Yeah. You have four different internet connections. That's I'm counting a Wi Fi connection with that, but yeah. Mm-hmm. But that is true. That's pretty baller. It (laughs) doesn't mean they're all, none of them are (laughs) fast. That's, (laughs) I have sometimes played around with combining all of them, but weakest link and all that. But you know what I mean? Like it's, it it is really nice to just, I run ethernet from the back of Dishy right into my pep wave. And, and for me, that is, that was such a nice thing for me that they, that they did that that, because essentially that means that dish is not only doing all of the work of connecting to the Starlink network, but it's also doing the DHCP relay. It's like it's doing the modem business too. And their router, while a pretty good little router that ran open WRT is, is actually unnecessary unless you don't have a firewall already, but now they've made that little router necessary. So there's one more component and I, I would not be able to manage it as well. So I'm, I'm glad I got it from that, from that point too. But, I do worry it means when they do finally release their mobile RV slash boat dish, which they are working on, they'll probably have a similar setup, which is probably what I'll have to switch to. Well, I'll buy the V1 stuff off you. There you go. There you go.
1: You heard it right here. (laughs) Hey. All right. So you text me during the week and I was, I was out doing stuff and uh, I got a text saying, Hey, hey, Alex. Hey, 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 Alex. Uh hedge dock is down you know that's what we use for all of our internal show notes and stuff like that to collaborate and you were just warming up to
0: record lup weren't you it was tuesday morning here in the pacific northwest busy morning for us and of course that's always the worst time to have something go down right because everybody's coming online here wes and brent and i are all kind of getting online in the morning and we're looking at the dock and it's it's not working and, th- you know, this happens when you self-host things. I mean, it's ne- ne- nothing's 100% when you use a, a service that is uh, hosted by a company either. Because, you know, when you think about it, all they're doing is self-hosting it. Just perhaps, you know, putting a, a bit of a veneer in front of it for you. And you would hope some standards and good practices and well, good team organization behind the scenes. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It depends how <laughs> Yo- good their SREs are, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you hope they have some infrastructure as code and you hope they have a support system. So anyway, I have all those <laughs> things. You know, you I am your SRE in
1: effect, and it still happened. Yeah. Uh, so what happened was we use on Linode, we have an external disk, which I formatted to ZFS so that I can do all the remote replications from the cloud of all the databases and stuff, backing up things like HedgeDoc and the paste bin that we use and all the other self-hosted stuff that's on that that server. Um, it comes back to my, my disk, so I do replication with ZFS. Turned out, for some reason, my Gmail app password that was doing the notifications of disk being full had stopped working, and I hadn't noticed. And so I logged in to have a look at this disk on my phone, via TailScale, by the way. So that was a huge, huge boon for TailScale. Like I hadn't set up the WireGuard profiles on my phone after downgrading it to Android 10 that I talked about in the last episode. And I was like, oh no, how do I get access to this box? And tail scale saved the day. So uh, anyway, the ZFS drive was full. So in the end, it was a simple matter of logging into the Linode web interface, adding an extra 50 gig to that disk, which is just so easy. I mean, I did it on my phone in, you know, we was watching my daughter in the tumble gym <laughs> <laughs> through the glass. Uh, and I was trying to do it all on like juice SSH, trying to do all these, you know, extends FS, blah, 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 blah. And. You know, in in the end, I sat down with a real keyboard at home, and fifteen minutes later, the problem was solved. But uh, let that be a lesson, kids. You've got to set up monitoring, alerting, but also monitor your monitoring because <laughs> if right. that ain't working, if your alerting isn't working, then um, you're gonna get a text from an angry Chris.
0: <laughs> it's funny that like a couple of outages that we've talked about on the show both were like Google account related. That's not lost on me. That's kind of interesting. Uh, but the other thing that I've been thinking is, like, I wonder if we could convert the back end storage for HedgeDoc to object storage. That's what we've done with a couple of other things like NextCloud. And the only downside is you got to watch your disk usage because it'll just grow and grow and mm-hmm. grow. And the great thing is object storage will just grow and grow with it. But you, you don't want it to get out of control because that could raise the cost. So there's but, you know, we're talking markdown documents when it comes to HedgeDoc. So you wonder there a little bit, but yeah, and and we do kind of take note. Oh, okay, yep, that's one more thing we need to add to the monitoring setup. Okay, yeah, we missed that one. <laughs> and you know, we were we were able to actually scramble and and just use the public instance of Doc. I realized, like, well, I guess, I guess I could go use that. Uh, and by the way, if you're not using HedgeDoc and you you like the collaborative editing features of Google Docs, but like something that does Markdown, man, as a team, do we just use the crap it's, out of it? It's this. so solid as well.
1: I mean, there was nothing wrong yeah.
0: with the app. It was just out of disk space. Yeah. I have been on the other side. I haven't really had an outage so much. You know, I mean, you could chalk this up. This is truly maybe a bit of self-hosting regret. Like, mm. Out of all the things I've self-hosted recently... I pretty much feel like they were all a solid decision except for Matrix, specifically the Synapse server. And I I think that if I was just setting up a Matrix server for the JB team or like my family or friends or a small project, it would be problem-free practically, man. It'd be really easy. But that's not what I did. I set up with, of course, the help of Wes, a matrix server for the Jupyter Broadcasting community at colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com. So Matrix is this new open source implementation of... Think Well, gosh. It's hard to explain because Matrix itself is not a chat. It has chat clients like we have web clients, right? So there's Element, which is a matrix client. And in the Element matrix client, it's a lot like Discord or Slack. It's, if you're familiar with those kinds of group chats or IRC of, of days gone, but uh, a little more, a little more modern with a lot of the inline chat features that people expect, and then on top of that, is there's other features like VoIP calling and, and file transfer and all kinds of things. Matrix itself is a protocol with a series of functionalities. I mean, it's you could use Matrix, though, isn't it? Is that it's decentralized? Yes, and it's federated. So there's a matrix.org server, we have a colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com server, there's a Fedora server, there's a GNOME server. Much like you'd have your own IRC server, you can run your own matrix server. Much like we have a Discord server, right? But that Discord server runs on Discord systems, and it's managed by Discord. The difference with matrix is you get all that Discord-like functionality, but you host it, you run it, uh, but... A federated chat system like this is no small task because it has to be aware of what the rest of the federation is doing. You have to have user accounts that can exist on both systems. And what ends up getting exposed is a lot of paper cuts for managing the system. Like, here's an example of just what happened this morning. And this isn't. This isn't a big deal. Right. But this is just what happened this morning. I got a message saying, hey, Chris, uh, I noticed that uh, the the logo image the PNG that you're using for your matrix space. Uh, it's too large for some servers. And so we're getting reports that your logo isn't displaying for a fair amount of users. And, you know, that's like, Oh, okay. Well, I guess I'll upload a smaller image. Right. But there's really no standard there. Different clients have implemented different restrictions. Servers have different, different restrictions. and, it's, it's a great example of a daily little task you have to do, like some little small tweak or adjustment to, to participate in the wider matrix community that probably should just be handled by software. Like I should be able to, up to upload a, a five megabyte PNG and server side software resizes it. And maybe it resizes it into three different sizes that are common sizes, right? Like, or it says it kicks back an error message on the client and it says, hey, man, upload a smaller picture. Here is some suggested file sizes. But you get none of that. What you get is you upload a picture, turns out that picture is too large. What's the appropriate size? Don't know. Just depends on what different people have set. So, you know, take a good guess and then just find out it doesn't work and then go back and fix it. And it's just sort of this unrefined, paper cutty experience. And it's a thousand different examples of that. And even with a a team of moderators, Wes and myself, I still get. I get looped into like daily jobs to take care of. And some I've been postponing now for weeks because I just don't have time. Meanwhile, we have three different Discord instances out there. You know, the self-hosted one, there's a JB one, there's an unfiltered one. And I I probably have to do two things a year with those instances, right? I mean, the same thing there, we have some community moderators and folks like yourself, Alex, that are involved. But in terms of like my involvement, it's like two things a year For each instance, where with Matrix, it's damn near daily. And that really just doesn't scale very well. And it clearly is an ongoing server maintenance task as well, because there's quite a bit of storage that we're constantly compensating for because we have to store images and videos and stuff that people upload and chat logs and all of that and storage or whatever it might be. The Synapse server itself is under frequent development. So even like right now, I need an update. I just updated it last week. There's an update right now for it. Right. Not a big deal. In fact, it's been really smooth. It hasn't kicked out any problems. And we have it all in Docker containers. And the upgrade has always gone really well to its credit. And there are server side tools to help minimize the database and whatnot. But again, you have to go employ those tools yourself on the command line manually. And it's just disheartening because as a self hosting advocate, it's so clear to me now that I've been running Matrix for a little while, a Synapse server that it is exponentially simpler to just go the Discord or Slack route than it is the Matrix route. And when the core functionality of what you're looking for is just an ability for you and your community to communicate, it's so much simpler to use something else besides Matrix. And I hate saying that because I want the free software, new standard thing to win, and I love that you can run your own and it's federated. So I think what, what my advice would be for people out there that want to self-host a matrix instance, is most of the time what you want is something small for your team that uses your domain name. Don't open it up to the world. For people that want to participate with you, but don't yet have a matrix account, have them just sign up at matrix.org. That's what I should have done. I should have set up a matrix server with a small team, just the JB team. And then all The rest of the community just went out and got Matrix.org or got accounts anywhere else they wanted, like they could already, or their own Matrix server. Instead, we opened it up to the world because I wanted to make it easier for the audience. And in doing so, we created something that has nearly daily maintenance tasks required. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, just not everybody wants to sign up for that. Thankfully, we are willing to, you know, participate in that because, again, I think this is an important thing. And I really think it's something like some projects could manage or companies could easily manage. And there are hosted solutions out there as well, but I do regret the way we deployed it. Looking back at it, the jupiterbroadcasting.com matrix server should have just been for jupiterbroadcasting.com staff. And then we would just connect using the federation system and have everybody else participate. Because we already have people from all different kinds of servers, their own, self-hosted or hosted, and they're participating in our chat room. And I could have just done that for everything. I'm not going to reverse course now. And I still appreciate the ability to learn from it, but I do have some regrets. I think you just highlighted the exact reason why
1: I went with Discord. You know, it, it was a, a bit of a a dictatorship style decision that, that we took to say, right, this is the self-hosted podcast, and yet we're going to make that compromise and go for Discord. But I think you've just articulated very, very clearly that we made the right call with, with that server, you know. Um as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we had an outage with some of our production infrastructure that we used to make the shows this week. And uh, the last thing I really want to be doing is futzing around with that stuff when it's not a planned situation. You know, um, an outage or something like that. And if if JB's primary audience communication community platform for the show is, is down, shows are down, then who's got to get out of bed and fix it? You know, it'd be one of us. You know, me, you, Wes, somebody like that. You know, there's there's nobody else to do that work. So... Uh I just you know, at the end of the day, we are making podcasts. We aren't necessarily system admins. And it's just a compromise. It's it's not a perfect situation, and I think you've just hit the nail on the head. But on a happier note, uh Linux unplugged four thirty-three. You, Wes and Brent, covered Jellyfin. And uh I, I'm sorry I couldn't make it that day. There was just a lot going on and with work and stuff like that, and it's during the day for me, so I couldn't make it, but uh, I have been trying Jellyfin for the last couple of weeks, and I've got to say it's really come a very, very long way. So thank you very much for putting that episode out, and uh, anybody in the audience that is a Plex diehard, like I am, really, uh, and has dismissed Jellyfin as not being fit for purpose... Uh, If you haven't looked at it in at least a year, I would strongly suggest that you do because it's come a very long way, particularly stuff like the Android TV client. It's not perfect. I've had a few crashes, a few stutters here and there, but on the whole, I would say for people like me who are willing to put up with that stuff, Jellyfin's pretty much there. So lilysunplug.com slash 433 to go and hear what the rest of the team
0: think about that one. Linode.com slash SSH. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support this here show. Linode is fast and reliable cloud hosting. You've got to try it, maybe for your next project or use it as a research and development lab like I have been this week. And honestly, Linode, you got me because of the performance. I mean, when I first started using Linode, it was before they were a sponsor. I didn't have like an obligation or a sense of like, I got to do it here. No, it was just, I chose Linode because I compared it to other things and they had the best performance and the best prices and the best dashboard. Now it turns out they also have the best customer service and they love, they love the technology all of this is built on. So that sort of permeates the company culture. That's stuff I've learned now a couple of years later. It's really great too, to watch Linode go. They've been doing this for 18 years. And they are not staying still. They have been rolling out PCIe MVME storage, and it is a game changer for certain types of applications. If you think yours might be one of them, like a database or maybe an e-commerce site, something that needs a lot of access to the disk, simultaneous connections, that kind of stuff, MVME can be so great, way more IOPS per gigabyte than traditional storage. So if you're a performance hound or you got an application that you think could really take advantage of Linode's new storage, go to linode.com slash SSH and sign up. Get that $100 credit. And now you're a customer. Contact their customer support and start working with them on NVMe storage options. See what makes the most sense for your application. They have absolute experts there that can help you figure this stuff out. And they have 11 data centers around the world. So you're going to find something that's near you, your friends, your family, or your customers. And they are their own ISP. So the nice thing there is if you want to have something in multiple different data centers, the connection between those data centers is screaming fast. Every single time I have a Linode system and I do a system update, I just am so thrilled at the experience of downloading packages because they do it locally. They cache the packages there. It downloads so fast, my terminal can hardly keep up with the package updates flying by my screen. That kind of stuff. I just love it. And they're just they're just really simple to use too. Like you can go get something up and going like the new next next cloud release in like in minutes. It's it's kind of ridiculous, really, considering how long it used to take take it back in my day. Uh, or you can do it all yourself. Then you can kind of have the back in my day experience. Go learn something, go try it, maybe put it in production. linode.com/ssh Time for a Docker segment
1: then. I think, don't think we've talked too much about containers and Docker and, and that kind of stuff in a while. And you've been trying out Portainer. I uh, I just can't see the point of
0: a, a Docker GUI, but can you? I started to get it. You know, this comes in all the time. Uh, I tried two Docker GUIs this week, actually. So my first one is Portainer. That's probably the most common one that we get an email about or something goes by in Discord, maybe. I hear about Portainer all the time and i it did it clicked with me a little bit more this time alex when i pointed portainer at systems that i haven't been using in a while like somebody else maintains them and then i wanted to like poke in and see what's going on so like from a like discovering what's going on and that kind of stuff portainer was pretty neat now if you're not familiar with portainer it is a web UI that sits on top of it runs in Docker and it sits on top of your Docker host, or it can connect to a remote Docker system either via the Docker API or their portainer agent, or just through direct Azure integration, if that's your choice. And then what you get is a management GUI. That's pretty sophisticated and it substitutes some common Docker parlances like Docker compose files for portainer stacks and uh, things like that. And it gives you a way to visualize everything going on, Docker-wise, on your system. And you can look at multiple systems, so that's one thing that's kind of nice, is you can install Portainer like I did to my Compute Module 4 on my <laughs> OpenSUSE Dumbleweed install. And then I added other remote Docker hosts to that Portainer instance, and that's kind of nice, right? I like that. And uh, I, I I tried really hard to love it, because I thought... Boy, wouldn't it be neat that to just bring all of the JB systems into one portainer management instance and keep tabs on all of them? Because in total, we I mean, I don't know, 30, 40 containers of different applications that we're running. Um, I would say 70% of those are for behind the scenes software that we use to produce the shows, maybe 60%. And um, I, I don't know how diligent we are (laughs) about about staying on top of those updates we are good about the public facing stuff but not so good about the internal stuff and so i kind of like the idea of just bringing it all under one management roof but man you know alex and i don't know i know you don't have the love for portainer either but i found it i found it frustrating and tedious to use you know i have to say on my remote systems i have to enable docker swarm I have to install their agent. You have to have Docker of a certain version. So immediately that means some rail boxes are out. And I found the entire thing to just be about 15 layers of lacquer on top of something that I, I just, I just didn't need anything that it's like it it was too complicated for what I need and also too restrictive at the same time. And it felt like a lot of fuss to get it up and going. And I don't really see it scaling out itself long term without getting to like some paid version of Portainer, which I really have zero interest in doing. And so I found myself sort of hitting the walls of using it within the first couple of days. And I, I felt bad because. I I've got we've gotten so many positive emails from the audience about it. I really wanted to love it. And I thought I had figured out my angle on it, and at the end of it, I thought I'm not going to use this. I just don't like it. And I I'm curious to know why I didn't why it didn't stick for you?
1: Well, they do offer a paid service. Um, you know their their business model from the beginning has been their uh, community edition is available for free, and then you have a business edition as well, which probably has extra Chrome or support or
0: something on it. Yeah, there seems to be several features that are in the Portainer business-only edition. But yeah, they have a community one that does allow unlimited nodes. I
1: think I'm still biased against them because in the very early days of linuxserver.io, I reached out to these guys and said, hey, you've got a whole bunch of templates. Why don't you feature our templates on your like template store thing? And eventually we worked with them and and got the Linux server containers to show up in their official template store. Uh, and then they just went dead on us. They just went quiet on us for no real reason that I could ever discern. And just quietly dropped support for all of our templates without telling us anything. So I wasn't best pleased with them after that. And uh after a you know a project or a company does something to burn you a bit like that, you know, they've got to go a long way to restore the goodwill and good faith. And for me I don't necessarily find a huge amount of value in a Docker GUI anyway, because Compose does everything that I need to and some. Maybe that's just making me out to be a bit of a curmudgeon troglodyte. I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Old uh, man Alex. (laughs) Yeah, maybe.
1: But, you know, at the end of the day, all it's doing is adding complexity. You know, and this is true for a lot of GUIs. You know, Unraid is one of them. True Now Scale is another... Open Media Vault, Portainer, a lot of these things that you can use to self-host different services, you've got to learn their specific quirks and incantations of how that particular developer expected you to go through their particular UX flow. And if you don't follow that, you can very quickly end up in a situation where, oh, well, you should have just clicked this, you should have just checked, or you could have. Well, I didn't. Okay. And <laughs> now it doesn't work. So,
0: um, you know, the other angle is it's not repeatable. So this is what I was going to ask you. is like, aren't we kind of solving the wrong problem here with this? I mean, it's not to give you an opportunity for an Ansible rant, but sh- aren't, shouldn't we be solving this from a different direction? Yeah, it's a
1: solution looking for a problem. It really is. And uh, you should have, and this is, I'm just going to go in the closet over there and get my soapbox. You should have all of your container definitions in a source control repository, some kind of version controlled Git repository, to be honest. There is no real reason why. Even even if all you're doing is just copy and pasting your Docker Compose file from your system that you manually go in and edit once a week, once a month, whatever it is, Uh, and then just copy and paste that into GitHub and click save. There is no reason why you shouldn't be doing that. And that will get you 99% of the way towards doing what a lot of big companies do anyway. Um, so, I, you know, I, I just look at Portainer and I lump it in with a lot of other GUIs. And I think, what what are you doing that I couldn't do myself? And the answer frequently is nothing.
0: Let me see if this shifts your opinion. All right. Couldn't you make that same argument for OpenSense? Like, imagine somebody who's super familiar with firewalls and routing and all of that on Linux. Like, they just live and breathe it. They would probably look at a solution like OpenSense and go, yeah, it's kind of the same thing. That's my opinion. See, that's the perspective I was trying to take at it.
1: Yeah. No, I totally agree. And it's for that reason that I separated out my DHCP and DNS, whenever episode it was, a few months ago. Uh, onto a Raspberry Pi which has been super solid and is living in version control and now if I want to update a DHCP lease I just go in and edit the file and my continuous integration deploys the stuff and off I go you know but that's not for everybody you know those skill sets you know they do require a bit of knowledge about how you know CI systems work and all the rest of it um, but just editing a config file is pretty straightforward and I think a lot of people would be kind of amazed at how simple something like IP tables actually is to
0: to operate if they just took the time to learn it I just wonder if maybe the argument isn't spend that time learning something like like github and git or ansible or some system instead of spending the time learning portainer not that portainer is bad But if you could learn some sort of configuration management where you could deploy your systems repeatedly and you could make a central change and then deploy that change, if you could take the time you spent learning Portainer and just learn how to properly utilize something like change control and change management with Git, uh, uh, that would be a skill set that would pay dividends for all your systems, right? And not just your Docker ones.
1: And here's another benefit
0: which may or may
1: not apply to you in your specific situation. But I wrote a role for ansible that spits out a rendered docker compose yaml file 3 4 years ago, uh, just just about when I was emigrating actually. And since then I've used that role Almost daily to create new compose files, not just for my server, but for the servers I have in England, the servers I manage for JB, the servers I manage for other, other people. Um, and so I've built essentially a self hosting framework or a, a Docker Compose kind of framework uh, in, in Ansible. And so for me, if I were to spin up a new server, I just transpose that role to that specific task. Insert my variables for that specific host and I don't even have to think about all the other stuff that I've set up over the last three or four years, that's a given. That's done. I I never have to think twice about what list of default packages I have on a specific box. Like, I know that I've got HTOP, I know that I've got, you know, all these other things on there. And uh, that it just truly is the power of config management. I don't really expect to get onto config management in this conversation, but Here we go. Anyway, (laughs) so this isn't a specific rant against Portainer in particular, but more a rant about GUIs and non-repeatable UX flows and stuff like that. Uh, You know, if you have to click through a, a wizard to set something up and then you don't get a repeatable experience at the end of it, it's not for me.
0: Backblaze.com slash SSH. Get peace of mind knowing your files are backed up securely in the cloud with Backblaze. You guys know Backblaze. Now go get a free trial, no credit card required, and support the show. Backblaze.com slash SSH. Unlimited computer backup for your Mac or your PCs for just $7 a month. Your documents, your music, your photos, your videos, your drawings, your projects, all of your data. And the nice thing is with Backblaze, you can restore your files anywhere they have. Web restore, they have an app for restore. And if it's a lot of data, if you ever get in that position, they even have a restore by mail program. You purchase a hard drive, they'll overnight it via FedEx. After you restore it, you can return the hard drive for a refund. How great is that? And one of the things that we've heard from the audience when they started trying out Backblaze is the mobile app is just a great way to get access to your files that you wouldn't normally have on quote unquote cloud storage. And they're stored there securely. In fact, Over 50 billion files have been restored for Backblaze customers. How cool is that? So go get a fully featured, no credit card required trial at Backblaze.com slash SSH. Visit Backblaze.com slash SSH so they know you came from here, supporting the show, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And you get that 15-day free trial. That's nice, isn't it? You guys know Backblaze. Now it's a chance to try it out 15 days for free. Backblaze.com slash SSH. Go there, play around with it, and start protecting yourself from potential bad times. Start today at Backblaze.com slash SSH.
1: All right, at the risk of my soapbox not quite being put away properly, uh, there was another GUI appeared on Reddit. I think it was this morning or yesterday. uh,
0: Lazy Docker. Have you tried this one out? I had to after I saw it take off in the Discord. I saw somebody going on about it, and I thought, let's go try it out, because it's a simple Go app, and... It's a command line tool. So I put some screenshots in the show notes if you want to see it on my CM4. And, um, well, let's see. Where to go with this one, Alex? I actually kind of like Lazy Docker. first of all. You can also get it pretty easily on the Mac or Windows. It's in Chocolaty and it's in Brew. So that's really nice. And then, of course, if I'm, you're on GNU slash Linux, you just need to have Go installed and you just run the binary. And what you get is an nCurses style clickable interface that lists your running services containers images and volumes and then so for example you could click if you have mouse support in your in your console or if you're ssh from a desktop that has a mouse you click the running service you can get your config information or you can get your uh, docker compose file or you can get process information or you could even get like a top style chart
1: i've got to go and check this out this looks really pretty cool actually
0: yeah, I actually thought it was not bad because you can it's so simple because most systems already have go these days. You can just curl it right down to a box and run it and what I what I what I got out of this that I was hoping to get with Portainer, but what really got it with Lazy Docker was it was a great way to jump on a system that I haven't been logged into for 6 to 9 months and just get an overview of what's going on, where the docker volumes are at, uh what processes are in there, and I have to say when I did that, I discovered that one of the containers was constantly restarting every few minutes, and I hadn't noticed because it had been up every time I connected to it, and I wasn't actively looking at anything. I wasn't checking the logs for that container, and I hadn't like gone in and looked at that particular one. I just, just was on the box and got an overview, and thanks to LazyDocker, noticed that, oh, yeah, look at this one. This one's restarting every few minutes. Let's go see what's going on, and I could see the... I can see the logs and everything right there.
1: This is 100% the only use case for a GUI that makes sense to me. It's yeah. just that dashboard aspect. You know, you can look at a graph, you can look at whatever, and it gives you just that big picture that a, a terminal kind of sort of sometimes gives you. Uh, but this has some nice extra features.
0: Yeah, and you could do it over an SSH connection, which I really appreciate, you know. Portainer, it's nice to be able to centralize everything and have it web based. And there is a there is a time and a place for a web based tool, but there's also a very important time and place for something that runs inside an SSH connection, like you just recently did. Like sometimes you just have SSH, you don't have a lot of options, and you need it to be there on the command line. And that's what Lazy Docker did for me. And the fact that I discovered one of my containers was having an issue was just kind of a bonus. And it's a great way to re reconnect or, I guess, what, reassociate yourself with what the hell's going on on a box if you, if you haven't been on there in a little bit.
1: I've got another one for you that is uh, it's, it's part of Docker, actually. Just log into a box that's running a few containers and type Docker stats. Mm, it is okay. pretty much like htop or top, I suppose, for all of your containers. It will show you the name of the container, the CPU usage, The amount of memory that's being used, net IO, block IO, all that kind of stuff. And also how many PIDs that particular container has created. So I can see, for example, here that Plex needs 140 PIDs within that container. Whereas, uh, say, something like a simple NGINX container is like seven.
0: Yeah. Oh, this is great. (laughs) I'm looking right now. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Some of these are such hogs. Yeah, It's shocking how
1: bad some of these are. The Java apps in particular. So the, the the worst offender for me, I've got BookSonic running, and I've actually used Docker Compose's spec to limit it to one gigabyte of RAM. So for those of you that don't know, BookSonic is an audiobook-friendly version of the subsonic Java-based server that is now like a decade old or more. Uh, and this thing, it runs like a pig. I mean, it's uh, it's using 900 megs of RAM to just sit there
0: and do nothing. <laughs> I mean, <sighs> you know what we need is, do you remember like if there was the, it, maybe you don't, this might've been before your time, Alex, but uh, in the old init systems of Linux of your, there was like this Zynet D and what it would, what it was is it was like this, this master process that would open a port on behalf of a service on your system, but to save resources, It would leave the service stopped until it received a connection on that port. And then it would start the service in the background and forward the connection and make it all transparent to the end client. So the first time, maybe it would be slow for the end user, but their connection would get forwarded once the service came on and everything would connect from then on. It would be fast. And what we need is something like that for Docker containers, because I have a similar thing where I have containers that I use a couple of times a month, but they're running 24-7. Yeah, I mean, for me, that's stuff like
1: Invoice Ninja that I use to in- invoice clients. You know, I do it on a batch once a month, and then it's running for the entirety of the rest of the month, and there's real, really no reason for that. So uh, I'm sure there are projects out there to launch containers on demand. If you know of one, please let us know at selfhostedshow slash contact.
0: I guess maybe we could wrap up our Docker dazzle, if you will. <laughs> with uh a talk about dozzle and uh, a couple of other things like uh, the fact that docker compose has some changes come coming i mean we could just make it a whole uh, docker extravaganza um i don't i don't know maybe we start with dozzle.dev
1: yeah this one's pretty great actually it's a real time docker container log viewer in the browser uh, it doesn't require anything terribly special apart from mounting the Docker socket. So usual provisos apply there in terms of security. You can mount it through a proxy. That's probably the safest way to do that. Um, but essentially what it does is it lists all of your containers on the left-hand side. It says the, you, know, you can see which ones are running, uh, when their last restart was, all that kind of stuff. But then you just click on the container and it shows you the logs as if you were doing Docker logs name of the service. Uh, and that's pretty much it. That's all it does, but it does it really
0: really well yeah and it helps it helps you search through the log and find stuff it has this really nice real-time search function that is super useful and after my experience I had earlier with uh, realizing that one of my containers was actually restarting frequently kind of realized I could use something like this so I'm going to take a look at Dozzle and uh, and maybe maybe I'll throw it on a machine. I talked about this one on Linux Action News, but it's worth noting here since we're kind of on a roll. Docker Compose is changing from like a standalone Python thing to inside Docker itself. So I think the way it's going to work, Alex, is existing Docker Compose commands will just kind of map to the new Docker Compose commands. But instead of it being like Docker dash compose, the new proper syntax will just be Docker space compose because it's now inside the Docker app and not a separate thing.
1: Yeah, just as if Docker needed to be even more monolithic, they are unbreaking out the separate project that is docker compose and bringing it in house. So I think this is a largely a bit of tech debt that they're addressing here. If you go way 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 back in the annals, uh docker compose actually started its life as a project named fig and then it was renamed to docker compose and it became what we know today. Um you know, in terms of this change here not a lot is going to change besides the invocation that you need to need to use, uh, although they do say that if you still use the hyphen, so docker hyphen compose, they're going to put in an alias that will effectively uh, just it will just continue working as you expect. um there should be full backwards compatibility with existing compose files, although there have been some small changes to the docker compose spec. so if you are seeing errors, that could well be why. More than likely, though, it's probably your YAML indentation that you screwed up. So make sure you enable whitespace in your editor. Uh, it's still in beta. Uh, so, you know, take that for what you will. You know, here be dragons, all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, there, are, there are some nice things in it, you know, largely, though, like I say, it's a, it's a tech debt style, addressing tech debt style release. And there isn't much really in terms of new features here for normal people. But the developers no. are very excited.
0: Well, and it's really how it always should have been. It, it, is, it does make sense. So for me, Docker Compose was what made it click. Because uh, a simpleton like myself now has directories that are upable that are just loaded with YAML files that just describe my infrastructure. Uh, and that's it. Right there, man. Like (laughs) as soon as I went, like, oh. And you know how damn handy it is to be able to just cat a file and say, like, where did I end up mounting? Oh, right. That thing points over here for storage. Okay, well, that's where I have to go on the file system. I do that crap all the time. So for me, Docker Compose was this massive upgrade. It took my occasional use to Docker from like, yeah, every now and then I'll fire something up to check it out, to like, this is how I deploy things now. Because that Docker Compose file, it is a plain text way for me to just visualize how an application is built and what it uses and I love it and so I'm glad to actually see it become like an official part of the main Docker app actually because it means it's going to be around forever and you start to see support in things like Podman for Docker Compose so it's starting to become more than just a Docker thing and I think that's great too. Now if you want to hear more
1: about that you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash 209 where Chris and Wes break that down in a bit more detail for you. Uh, I wrote a blog post a little while ago about how I can manage um, monolithic Docker Compose files. So I'm the type of guy that tends to slam my 30 containers all into one massive file. I know some people have uh, different preferences with when it comes to managing these things through stacks and what have you. But uh, I found a, a feature that got added to Docker Compose. I'm not quite sure when, uh, called profiles, and in essence. This allows you to address multiple services within a monolithic file itself. I can give each container a specific profile, like a tag in the YAML of like test or prod or something like that. Um, And I can address all of my test containers within one massive file as if it were part of just a smaller stack, probably a limited use if you're using stacks and uh, you know what stacks do. You create a directory, you put the YAML file inside that directory and each compose file that's in each directory is what's called a stack and compose will treat that as like a separate entity and one of the new features in docker compose v2 is that you can actually enter those directories and list different stacks uh like ps processes and ls and you know see what different containers are part of different stacks that does make compose even a bit more useful um but if you want to find out about the profiles i wrote a blog post
0: Okay, good. Link will be in the show notes at self-hosted.show slash five nine.
1: So as always, a big thank you to our SRE subscribers. You make this show possible over at self slash SRE. We do every episode. We do a little post show where Chris and I talk about some some fun stuff. What are we talking about this week?
0: Uh Well, Wendell sent you a
1: KVM. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. I- yeah. We're gonna be talking about that. I have such a such a goldfish brain. Sometimes <laughs> we we talked about that half an hour ago. <laughs> I got it right up here. Um, but also, we've got a live stream coming up as well, where Chris is going to start putting together his first ESP-based device with
0: ESP Home. Yeah, that's right. It's gonna be it's gonna be awesome. I've been wanting to do something like this for a long time, and I was I was complaining. Alex, was like, man, if you lived here, I know you'd just be over here, and we'd have this thing built in like a weekend. And then he's like, well, let's just jump on a call and do it. And then we thought. Wouldn't that be awesome to hang out with our members? We haven't figured out all the tech yet, but we'll have more information soon, like in the post show, and we'll make a member's post, too, to let people know what's going on when we have it all dialed in. We'll do it before the end of 21. How about that as
1: a promise? I like it. That's a good idea. Goals, Alex. Goal. All right. Now, if you want to send us in your feedback, you can go to self-hosted.show slash contact. That's the place to go to get in touch
0: with us. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger. There you go. I'm at ChrisLAS on there. The podcast itself, that's at Self-Hosted Show. What is it? I don't know. I can barely say it. I'm kind of feeling like I'm done plugging the Twitter. Now that Jack's out, I feel like we should be out, Alex. (laughs) 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 All right, everybody.
1: Thanks for listening and not going
0: on Twitter. That was self-hosted.show slash 59.